Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Well, hello, hello. It's Tuesday, August 10th. Unless it isn't. I have no idea when you listen to this show. It's a podcast, too. I, I can't be responsible for that. I have so many other things to worry about. So um, I'm sorry I haven't brought up the date at all. Uh, a little bit later on the show, you're going to be reminded about, unless you are too young to benefit from being reminded about, the uh, 20th anniversary of the birth of the Segway. But also, I don't know. I've already recorded this particular segment. It's kind of interestingly forward-looking, too. Like, you know, if we'd taken the Segway a little bit more seriously... Ah, maybe our climate problem would be a little bit less horrible uh, than it is right now. Um, and we'll also talk in the final uh, segment about a project that kind of mirrors some of the early intent of the Segway. It's actually a, pro- a project to study squirrel decision-making and squirrel motility with the goal of developing incredibly flexible robots and maybe devices that will help people with specific kinds of disabilities related to grasping and motility. But we're going we're to begin with this story... I, thought, I never thought I would feel sorry for an insensate astral body, but I kind of do. I kind of do about this. I'll explain it to you in just a second, or it'll become clear in just a second. I don't know what you were doing on November 3rd of 2018. Ariana Grande had released a thank you next, and everything else that happened on that day was some horrific Trump administration thing that we all just need to forget about uh, as soon as possible, uh, except for one man who was staying up late playing a video game called Counter-Strike. And he was also keeping track uh, of another thing. And that's where we're going to begin our story today. We're going to talk to Jonathan O'Callaghan, uh, a, a freelance space and science journalist. He is not the man staying up uh, late playing the video game, but he knows about him. And he joins us now to tell us the story of what is known as the accident. Uh, so first of all, welcome to our show. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So um, so let's let's begin. Let's begin with this uh, gentleman who's uh, staying up late playing a video game, but he's also keeping track of a kind of a space surveillance. He's uh, looking for something. He's searching for something. What does he find? Yeah, he finds this uh, kind of fast-moving object uh, about 50 light years away from us uh, that is kind of very cold, very faint, uh, and that we think is a class of object called a brown dwarf, which is kind of a, a failed star, something that kind of grew quite big, but never got big enough to begin nuclear fusion in its core. So it's kind of in this murky borderland between uh, a planet and a fully fledged star. Yes, I mean, this is sort of a new, one of many interesting parts about this thing is that, you know, I think when we are in grade school and perhaps beyond that, our teachers basically tell us there's a pretty so- solid taxonomy, right? Stars are stars, planets are planets, asteroids are asteroids, etc. You know, but actually there are these kinds of things that are neither exactly 100% fish nor fowl. And, and this kind of falls into that category. Maybe you can say a little bit more. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, we actually know of uh, we know of a few thousand of these objects in our galaxy. Uh, they're, they're quite plentiful, and as as um, as kind of dust and gas comes together in in the universe, uh, it can form planets, it can form stars that have planets around them. But you know, if you don't have quite enough mass, um, 
things never never get quite big enough to reach the kind of hot temperatures you need in the core of that object to begin nuclear fusion. We think that temperature is around 3 million degrees Celsius, so pretty hot. But, you know, if you don't quite reach that temperature, you never begin this process of, of burning hydrogen, helium, and, and, and producing new elements. So you just kind of become like a very big Jupiter sort of thing. So brown dwarfs occupy this mass range that's roughly about 13 times the mass of Jupiter up to about 75 times the mass of Jupiter. Uh, they're kind of in this in this broad range between planets and stars. But yeah, at either end of those scales, the uh, the two sides of the boundary are, are pretty murky, especially that upper scale. We don't really know when nuclear fusion begins. Uh, we don't really know why something that's 75 times the mass of Jupiter would be a star or a brown dwarf. Uh, and, and we're just kind of trying to get to the bottom of that at the moment. Right. So, I mean, it's for me kind of counterintuitive to think of something that was, first of all, there's so much judgmental language around this thing, failed star. I mean, and then they call it the accident just because of the way it was discovered. But this thing, the accident is a placeholder for, as you say, uh, you know, uh, many, many, many uh, other astral bodies kind of in this gray area. Although a thing that was supposed to be a star, in my mind, isn't going to, for example, have an atmosphere. But some of these things do have atmospheres, correct? Yeah, I, I think it's safe to say all of them have atmospheres. Um, I, we don't quite know what what it would look like to be up close to one of these objects, but it would probably look a little bit like Jupiter. Uh, you'd see some banding, kind of uh, uh, the, the result of high winds in the atmosphere. Uh, we, we have measured the winds on, on a brand off before. Um, you'd probably see some spot-like storms, like Jupiter's Great Red Spot. Um, and they probably would look kind of red or orange, not brown. Uh, the name brown dwarf is a bit of a misnomer uh, that was coined because we already had brown dwarfs and we already had uh, yellow dwarfs. Uh, the next one down was brown dwarf. So it's not a quite true reflection of what they look like. But yeah, these things have clouds. They have atmospheres. They probably have storms. They have high winds. Um, so if, if you didn't know otherwise, you'd probably say it looked like a, a lot like a big planet. Right. So, uh, you know, there is, as you say, a spectrum, a continuum of these things. The accident, the body that we're talking about that was discovered more or less by accident, uh, is um, on one end of the scale, right? It's an extremely small, cold and faint object, uh, as you write. Say a little bit more about that. Mm -hmm. So um, all the brown dwarfs we found so far, they generally follow quite a similar trend. So um, throughout the history of the universe, heavy elements, which which we call metals, um, those are produced when stars explode as supernovae. And if something is uh, rich in metals, it means it's probably a, a newer object. For example, our sun is relatively rich in metals, uh, so it must have formed quite recently in the universe, in universe terms, you know, last five billion years or so. Uh, but this object, which is very close to us, so in our young region of the, uh, of the galaxy, is really metal poor. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't really have many metals at all, which means it must have formed a long time ago, uh, maybe one of the first brown dwarfs to form in our galaxy, uh, which is confusing because it shouldn't be here. It shouldn't be next to us. It should be somewhere else in the galaxy. It should be towards the edge of the galaxy where a lot of older stars are. Uh, it shouldn't be near us. So that's this is why this object is interesting because it kind of doesn't fit any of the class we have so far for brown dwarfs. If you look at it on a graph, it kind of is an outlier to all other known Brown dwarfs. So th that's led a few different uh, theories to what it might be. Uh, the leading theory at the moment is it is a really old brown dwarf that came from 
kind of the outer galaxy and was pushed inwards towards us is now zooming past. Um, but it could be something more exotic. It could even be a planet itself, a really big planet that was ejected from a star. Uh, or it could be the remnant of a of another star. Uh, it could be like a, a, a an old core of a star or a white dwarf. Uh, but at the moment, we think it was probably a brown dwarf that was kind of kicked inwards from the outer galaxy towards us. Right. And you say zooming. You say, I mean, it's not supposed to be here, but it's here. But it's it's definitely moving, right? I mean, that would be one of the explanations as to how it got here. Mm, yeah, it's moving at, I think, uh, 200 kilometers per second, if I'm... <laughs> Uh, remember, remember that correctly. Yeah, that's right. Which is, uh, yeah, that's pretty quick. I mean, obviously things are, that that's relative to us, that's pretty quick. But, you know, we're, we're all moving at, at hundreds of kilometers per second uh, in orbit and then around the galaxy. So, yeah, it is, it's is—it's quick relative to everything else. But, you know, things in space are all relatively fast compared to something else. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting because we saw, you know, in, in my lifetime and, and yours probably the downgrading of Pluto uh, from a planet. This is a thing that's kind of coming at the, you know, it's not a planet, but these brown dwarfs or whatever it is we're going to call them, uh, they, you know, they're kind of planet curious, right? They ha- have atmospheres. Some of them have a protoplanetary disks. I'll have you explain what that is in a second. Uh, and, and that raises questions uh, also about what else might conceivably uh, be o- orbiting them. But first of all, explain the protoplanetary disks. Sure. So when a star forms, um, this, that, a star forms from dust and gas uh, collapsing under gravity and forming like a hot protostar. Uh, and then that will have its own gravitational field, which will uh, have like a disk of dust and gas swirling around it, which is called a protoplanetary disk. And that is where you get uh, planets form like Earth uh, and all planets of our solar system. Uh, they gradually coalesce from that disk uh, around a star. Um, so that's the strict definition between stars and planets. Planets don't have a, a disk that forms planets around them, although they can form moons. Uh, but a star will have its own disk and forms planets. But we do think that there are some brown dwarfs that can also uh, form planets uh, in the same way that a star can do, which is kind of confusing because they're quite big, but not that big. And if they can have planets, then what is a planet and what is a star and what can host what? Then things get kind of muddled (laughs) when you get down to like the the nitty gritty of it. Yes, Um, no, you're making my head hurt. Um, I mean, everything was so orderly before I started talking to you. So, so just to back up and make sure people kind of grasp that. So here's this thing. It was supposed to be a star. It didn't have ultimately the the, the energy components that was required to become a star. We're not even 100% sure how that whole process works or doesn't work. So it, it's, it's not a planet uh, unless it is. Uh, and it's a failed star. But it might have some something like it. Not probably this one, the accident, but it might. Some of them might actually have something that's either a moon or a planet going around and around it, right? Yeah, some of these things, yeah, would have could have planets going around them. Uh, I mean, that raises interesting kind of speculation because obviously you need a certain amount of energy on a planet to produce anything notable, like any life or vegetation. So. You could imagine any planet orbiting a brown dwarf is probably not the most exciting place in the world. Probably just some hunk of rock with a little, uh, few features on it, kind of Mercury-esque. Um, but yeah, I guess you kind of have these things which are failed stars and maybe they can have kind of failed solar systems orbiting them as well, uh, which is maybe a bit depressing. Is it always going to be called the accident? Is there some kind of plan to maybe rebrand it somehow? 
Well, it's got a like a it's got a scientific name, which is oh, good. Wise one one Wise one five three four hyphen one zero four three. Actually, it's much longer than that, but that's the shortened uh, version of it. But no, we don't tend to give these things proper names. Uh, you know, there are thousands of brown dwarfs, and there are billions upon billions of stars, and billions upon billions of planets if we start naming everything we're going to be there a long time so only the very interesting things tend to get kind of quirky <laughs> names that are unofficial all right well this is definitely an interesting thing it's you know it's it's near us it's not supposed to be near us uh, it barely knows what it is and neither do we so uh thanks very much for your time today jonathan o'callaghan is a freelance space and science journalist uh he wrote about this i believe initially for quanta uh thanks for doing this with us today no problem. Thank you for having me on. All right. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to tell you, we're going to remind you about the saga of the Segway, but not entirely in a mocking way. I promise. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health. So this is kind of weird because... I, I suppose I should insist that we planned it this way, but that's actually not true. The segment that's going to follow this one is going to be about a squirrel psychologist who's part of a team studying squirrels uh, with the goal of, A, developing uh, devices that can use squirrel motility and decision-making uh, to improve uh, the motility and grasping ability of, of people with certain kinds of disabilities, physical disabilities, and also to develop the most agile robot ever, which is kind of weird because what we're going to talk about now started 20 years ago and involved an inventor who was interested in sort of similar questions. You know, how do you develop a machine that, well, a, one kind of machine that can help people with certain physical disabilities and, and another kind of machine that kind of mimics and, and enhances natural movements. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about Dean Kamen, perhaps not, of course, uh, inventor of uh, the Segway and of a very specific kind of wheelchair. And I'm talking about the big surprise that was known as IT, 
or known as Ginger, depending on who you were talking to back in those days, uh, 20 years ago, and we got the segue. And here to talk to us about this uh, are Steve Kemper, the author of several books, including Reinventing the Wheel, the Story of Genius, Innovation, and Grand Am- Ambition. Uh, Dan Coyce uh, is an editor and writer at Slate, although his uh, role in this uh, is in, in a different job in a different time. Uh, and we're going to begin by explaining. Well, Steve, you should begin by explaining. You you wrote the book, as they say. You, you were working on a book. You had Dan as an agent. Tell us about that book. Uh, well, first, it's all Dan's fault that all this has been right. <laughs> yes. There's sort of a big festival of blaming Dan for everything right now, and, and Dan is participating in a very self-lacerating way. So, uh, but yeah, it's go- been quite a week. <laughs> <laughs> so, Steve, go ahead. You 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 were approached by Dean Kamen, this inventor, uh, to do a book. Right, I'd done a, a profile of him for Smithsonian Magazine, and uh, I don't know, maybe a couple of years later, he called me up to his research and development place and said he he had done something that was the best thing ever. And this is a guy who invented the drug transfusion pump and all kinds of things that were major inventions that had helped the world. And he said, and the thing I'm, I've just, I'm working on, I'm about to start working on, is going to change the world. And I'd like it to be written about in a book. And so that's how it started. He wanted to pay me to do it. And I said, no, I'm a journalist. And so I'll do it if you just let me hang around and don't have any control over the final product. And I'll take my chances that I can interest someone. And that's how Dan got involved. Right. And f- by the way, for the long form and very good audio version of this story, I can't recommend enough uh, the episode of Decoder Ring, which is a terrific podcast anyway, uh, but the, the episode that deals with this. You get a much longer and more detailed version of the story that we're, uh, we're about to tell you. But, you know, Dan, just to telescope the, the story a little bit, um, you know, one of the things I think that you, one of the conclusions you have come to is that the entire narrative that we're about to explore here would have been different and probably different in, in, in a better way if, in fact, this hadn't been initially introduced to the public as something, nobody knew what, that was going to, quote, change the world, unquote. Yeah, so this is, we're talking about 1999, 2000 here when Steve approached me and I was a baby agent at a literary agency outside Washington, D.C., just starting to try and get my own clients. I, you know, I'd been an assistant for a couple of years. And Steve was one of the first journalists I spoke to who just had like a really amazing idea. And the only problem was that the amazing idea was totally secret. He couldn't even tell us what this invention was that he was writing about, that this genius inventor had been working on and and, and said would change the world. And, and, you know, people like Steve Jobs and and uh, Jeff Bezos were agreed that it would change the world. And so uh, when we sold that book proposal at, at the very beginning of 2001, uh, we sold it to a publisher, Harvard Business School Press, without them knowing what the invention was. They <laughs> took a flyer on it, thanks to Steve's extremely good proposal and the testimonials of these people who were involved in it and the bona fides of Dean Kamen, who had invented these incredible things. And just a few days after we made that deal, the news leaked. The book proposal was leaked to, got leaked to journalists. um, And a a website called inside.com wrote about it. And, and the fact that you couldn't know what the invention was above all else was what drove people crazy and what created this incredible 
what I think of as a, a one of the first truly viral moments of the new internet in 2001, where not only was everyone on the internet talking about it, everyone was talking about it on CNN, on NPR, on the BBC, on Good Morning America, the New York Times. It was everywhere, and it was because of the secrecy. And so, as Steve wrote so well in his book, and as I tried to show in the, the Decoder Ring podcast in my piece in Slate, the the fan the way that everyone could create these fanciful visions of what this thing could be a hoverboard or a jetpack or matter transference or god knows what that rose that got everyone's expectations so high that basically anything that dean came in presented short of you know a tube to mars would have been a disappointment but the you know the other part of this there's so many other parts of this so I went back and uh, read uh, reread some of Steve's book uh, and I was emailing him this morning I should say I know Steve I knew Steve 20 years ago uh, I was uh, hanging around with him at parties when he couldn't tell us what his book was about um, I think he might have even been on my old WTIC show not being able to tell us what the book was going to be about but um, but you know the it's really I don't know I, I was emailing Steve this morning I said really this book is really ripened in a really interesting way it's like you know, I mean, the, this. We should talk about the the. I think it's called the West Coast ambush in the book. There's this scene where Cayman is basically invited out uh, to the West Coast to show his thing to really the Brahmins of the tech revolution. Particularly, Steve Jobs and Jeff Bezos are are in this scene. And and Steve, maybe you just should say a little bit about it. Uh, uh, you know, there, there's a way in which that moment predicts. Both some of the folly that would would follow, but also shows just some of the appeal of this to very smart people who are accustomed to making very good business decisions. Yeah, that's exactly right. These these guys they all assembled in this ballroom uh, at this hotel, and the doors were locked. And came and came in with a couple of duffel bags that were clanking, and he opened them up and proceeded to assemble this little machine. And, and then they started riding around this ballroom, whooping, especially Bezos, who's notorious for his big honking laugh. And then uh, Jobs came in and, and just, just basically crapped on everything about it. And, and tried, he was trying to convince Dean. He had a two-pronged strategy, I think. He wanted to convince Dean that he should be the mastermind behind it, not the doofuses in New Hampshire, and that he should let that Dean should let him be the major investor and shove aside all these minor players like Bezos and John Tor. <laughs> so it was a, it was a very, it was a, it was a clash of monumental egos, brains, enthusiasm. And you have to remember throughout all this, Dean is the most amazing salesman that I've ever seen in my life. He really, he can sell, he, he did sell everybody this idea that it was going to, be bigger than the internet, bigger than the car. You know, it was going to do everything. They all believed it and they're all smarter than I am. So I thought, well, if they believe it, it must be true. And so that's the chapter that I used to send to Dan that he sent out without telling anybody what happened, what the machine was, what they did on the machine, nothing like that. You know, so it, there's, there, I knew it was it was going to be the, one of the centerpieces of the book, and it was. 
You know, there's another See, moment, in the moment in that chapter I want to just bring up, uh, Dan, which is so there's a moment where somebody else who's not a well-known person at that point, but goes on to be pretty well-known, Eileen Lee, uh, who's working at that point for John Doerr. Eileen Lee, among other people, is apparently or at least credited with being the person who coined the term unicorn uh, in its kind of tech sector startup business usage, which is kind of funny also in this context. But she she uses what sort of MBA jargon, as Steve writes at the time, uh, value proposition. She's, she asks one of Cayman's people, what's the value proposition here? And she she lists other kinds of devices and explains what the, you know, it means sort of in this context, what's the primary selling point? You're going to want this thing because why? You're going to want this thing for what? And the Cayman's guy can't really answer the question. And to me, uh, uh, Dan, uh, rereading that section today, I thought, oh, <laughs> the doom of the segue is going to writ large in that conversation. I, I don't know whether you react the same way. I did. And, you know, it's I, and hearing Steve retell the story just now, I started just trying to figure out what was it that those geniuses were responding to in that room. And it, it clearly wasn't a clear and obvious value proposition, even though Dean had high hopes for the specific problems that this invention would solve, you know, the so-called last mile problem, where how do you get around a crowded city in a way that isn't a car, um, but that gets you from your subway stop to your office, for example, or from your apartment to the store. Um, he, his company wasn't truly in the process of making something at a price point and a size that could solve that problem right away. And so it seems like what, you know, from the storytelling in Steve's book, what everyone in that room was responding to was the thing that everyone who ever stepped on a ginger, a Segway responded to instantly, which was just how magical it felt, like riding a magic carpet. I always think of it as like surfing. How are you being propelled? forward, uh, you know, in this, in this totally, in this totally beautiful way, it makes you more elegant than you ever have been in real life. And so the idea of these guys becoming instantly convinced, as I think Steve Jobs says in that chapter, the problem won't be convincing people to buy it. The problem will be having enough of them to make sure that everyone gets one. No one's going to need convincing, everyone thought. The very act of setting foot on one is enough to convince you forever that this is the future. You know, Steve, it's weird having this conversation with you and Dan on this particular day because we're, you know, kind of one day out from this really horrifying but not surprising climate report. You know, and and, and is there some part of you that uh, when you when you read news like that, you think we should have been gingering more people? should have been gingering uh, for the last 20 years, and the news would still be bad, but not as bad. I mean, there's a way in which the vision that came and had had some real truth at the heart of it. Yeah, I, I, I'm totally convinced that you're right about that. The idea is beautiful. The machine is beautiful. And everything else that Dean did <laughs> was wrong. In fact, he, he sabotaged his own ideas in so many ways and it would be better you're, you're absolutely right if we had small small ways that were safe on the sidewalks and people were using them i mean look, look at the stuff that's in the cities now there it's craziness these, these scooters that people use uh motorized bikes and um and, and who knows how many people go to the hospital because of these 
poorly engineered yet very serviceable because they're needed ways to get from point A to point B shortly in a short in a short amount of time. Dean's idea, as Dan said in, in, in the podcast, the problem is it was it was too good, it was too elegant, and we just needed some mediocre way to do it. I wish more people had realized it at the time. It is, right. The, it's, the it's, segue wasn't the answer to the question. The segue was the first step. And one thing that the sort of very public, a nearly comical failure of the segue did is that it slowed people down, I think, from really trying to address that market for, you know, a good 10 years. And, and so the things that, as Steve notes, you see zipping around cities now, which I'm inclined to believe are usually basically safe enough uh, in the grand scheme of things, took longer to get to cities. And so we're even further behind the eight ball than we are. And the big changes that we've seen in cities like New York and Paris uh, and even smaller cities over the last year, even uh, during the pandemic, as they've started to shut down streets and make them make their, their central cores less accessible to cars and more accessible to pedestrians and people on these little devices is the kind of change that if Dean hadn't totally screwed up the segue with some assistance, perhaps from me, we might have seen happen 20 years ago. Um, I think you need to let yourself off the hook there. But um, yes, <laughs> it is my pleasure to tell you that the kinds of products that you're talking about now are referred to by the Consumer Product Safety Commission as micro-mobility products. That would include hoverboards, electric scooters, and e-bikes. Uh, and and they, they do produce reports now on the deaths, injuries, and other kinds of hazards created by them. They're not as safe as the Segway. Although, you know, I mean, Steve, the, the Segway went up having two other kind of branding problems that would have probably hurt it even if it had been more sagaciously launched. One of them was one of them was sort of comedies. I mean, for me, it's Job Bluth in Arrested Development, you know, and the Bluth family is just kind of uh, a silly family that is, in fact, associated with injudicious business enterprises. <laughs> and he's one of the more comical features in that family. And he's running around uh, on the scooter, of course, Paul Barth, mall cop, you know, and then less comically, you know, ultimately the guy who 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 bought the company really tragically uh, while he owned the Segway company, he died um, apparently by while on a Segway trying to get out of the way of a dog walker and fell off a cliff. I mean, that's sort of the kind of thing that would really have dealt quite a blow to the brand if it had been thriving a little bit more. Yeah, it sort of gives the light to the old saw about all publicity is good publicity. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. That one definitely wasn't. And, and, and the other one that I thought you were going to mention was President George Bush. Oh, yeah. Onto one and toppling straight over. Also, because, a guy almost hit uh, Usain Bolt, uh, a photographer, I think. Um, yeah. yeah. So, was... <laughs> I mean, yeah, people tend to focus on the bad things, but I don't know. Rereading some of this stuff today, Dan, I think the solution is, particularly since you insist on, on flagellating yourself uh, about this, when I don't really think you made any big mistakes at all. But uh, if you really feel bad about it, the thing you should do is get a leave of absence from Slate and and put on your agent hat again. Sell the freaking movie rights to this thing right now. It It is either a terrific movie 
or uh, an HBO six-parter or something waiting to happen. You know, it, like the plot has gotten better. I mean, I just mentioned a very tragic element uh, of the plot, but that's actually, you know, would work well in a film content. And that, that whole scene with Bezos, who, you know, 20 years ago, nobody really knew who Jeff Bezos was, not the way we do now. You know, that whole scene's an amazing scene. I know, I, I feel like now this is a really terrific, if slightly differently tinctured, kind of project uh so what about it dan can we get the movie made i'm just sorry we can't get robert duvall circa 1985 to play steve (laughs) (laughs) oh we can cast steve (laughs) we have to cast cayman that's going to be a a complicated one Um, Uh, he's a complicated character you know as steve notes he's the world's greatest salesman he's also mercurial and whimsical and anti-establishment and reportedly both inspirational and a gigantic pain in the neck to work for. Um, you know, the stories that Steve and I, the story, the things Steve witnessed while he was at DECA and the stories I heard from engineers I interviewed even 20 years after the fact all showed this incredible mix of total admiration and total exasperation to be working for this guy who brought the best out of you and then would undercut all your work by you know, asking you to follow this total wild hair for the next year and send you hurtling away from your deadlines at rocket speed. And Steve, he still remains kind of fascinating. I think he's last time I knew he was trying to make artificial organs, uh, which really could once again transform medicine. Uh, and I know he got all involved in selling PPEs uh, to I think the VA or something during uh, during the pandemic. But there's sort of I, I don't Steve. Do you have the sense that we we haven't heard the last of uh, Dean Kamen and he he might still invent something that really does transform the way we live? Yeah, he. The, the words tossed around too too often, genius, but almost everybody who spends any time with Dean ends up using that word about him because it seems applicable. And he says he doesn't want to work on anything that's not going to change the world. Uh, although I learned from Dan's piece that Decca invented something to do with soda, soda pop. <laughs> uh, it changed my world, Steve. <laughs> The soda machine and movie theaters that lets you mix all different flavors in your Diet Coke. It's incredible. <laughs> I'm shocked that Dean worked on that. Must He must have uh, gotten some real enticements. But he is working on something like the, the Sterling engine, which which makes energy and clean water, because those were two of the biggest problems in the third world, and he wanted to fix that. I mean, he, he's, he's the kind of guy who thinks, well, these major problems, I can fix that. I'm an engineer. And that's that's the inspiration that he gives to the people who work for him. So, yeah, we're, we're not through hearing about Dean. All right. We're not through hearing about either one of our guests either. Steve Kemper has uh, books he's written since then and books still to come. You can check all of that out on his website, uh, which bears his name. Dan Coyce is an editor and writer at Slate. Do listen to the whole Decoder Ring episode uh, about this. It's really terrific and goes into more detail than we ever could have done right now. But Steve and Dan, great to talk to both of you again. Thanks, Colin. All right. We're going to take a break, and we're going to talk to somebody else who has a vision. Do squirrels have the secret to human and robotic motility? Somebody thinks so. (laughs) 
Hi, we're back. Uh, now is the time in the show when I issue my uh, thank yous, and I will issue one, as I usually do, to Kat Pastor, who is our technical producer, kind of making everything happen the way it's supposed to happen. Uh, Jonathan McPants is the producer of this episode and many others as well. We're going to conclude uh, with a conversation that really does kind of link or blend kind of nicely to the preceding one. Uh, I should begin by declaring my own prejudices. I am part of a squirrel-friendly household. Uh, we have a squirrel uh, known as the Little Professor who has been training us for quite some time uh, to – I used to say him. It turns out to give her um, things that she wants to eat. And the reason I know it's a her is that the Little Professor has now produced an, a very annoying offspring who seems to be trying to take over the little professor's corner of the world. So anyway, squirrels are really fascinating. And if you're wondering, what are we going to do now that the Olympics are over? And there's no gymnastics to watch anymore. And you can't see Simone Biles and the other gymnasts doing these gravity-defying leaps. Just look out your freaking window because the squirrels are out there doing things that no gymnast ever dreamed of. Here to t- tell us more about that is Lucia Jacobs, principal investigator at the Jacobs Lab of Cognitive Biology at the University of California, Berkeley, and co-author of a new study published in Science. Acrobatic squirrels learn to leap and land on tree branches without falling. Uh, Lucia Jacobs, welcome to our show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So before we even get to the, the subject of this particular study and the st- subject of the related article, uh, you are a squirrel psychologist, which doesn't mean that squirrels come to you to talk about their intimacy issues uh, or other problems that they're having. This is You're trying to understand squirrel cognition. And it's pretty clear, anybody who's ever watched squirrels or watched that 21-minute squirrel obstacle course video, it, there's a lot going on with these animals, right? They're, they are thinking and problem-solving a lot of their day, it would seem, correct? Absolutely. Um, and I wanted to say I've enjoyed your show very much. And in response to the first segment, when I was doing my PhD on squirrels at Princeton, um, I was asking the question, do squirrels remember where they bury their nuts? And I actually demonstrated that they did, which was actually the first demonstration that squirrels can remember where they bury their nuts. Um, my, my best friends at the time were um, Ken Libricht and Earl Spiller, who were astrophysicists hmm. studying one, Earl, the weight of the universe, and Ken, the shape of the sun. Hmm. And I was studying, do squirrels remember where they bury their nuts? So I'm, I'm used to um, squirrels being kind of the... Comic the relief. Fringe show, right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yes, but they're, they're fascinating um, animals. Um, they're very long-lived they, um, they're really what we call a spatial specialist, a champion species. They, um, I mean, they not only move in 3D the way as we'll talk about, but they also uh, cache nuts every year, you know, three, 5,000, and remember where they cache them and have all these complicated decisions. And so they're really working this 2D space in, um, in incredible um you know, detail. And it, and it's in fact, we've shown that the squirrel brain actually it gets bigger in October when they're um, making all these 2D um, decisions. Right. That's really, I, I, there's so much to unpack in what you just said. But let's uh, take a step back and uh, talk about your friend who was trying to calculate the weight of the universe. Squirrels don't do that, but they do try to calculate or evaluate a nut based on its weight, right? Ex- explain that whole sort of yeah, head shaking thing. 
so this was great. This was my graduate student, Stephanie Preston, who's now professor of human um, psychology at Michigan. And um, she came in one day and said, the squirrels are shaking their heads. Why are they shaking their heads when they have a nut in their mouth? And I said, professor, oh, no, no, you, you're, you're, you, know, you're, you didn't see that. And so we go out, we study the squirrels on campus. She shows me, lo and behold, something I've missed for decades, the squirrels you give them a nut, they roll it in their paws, they put it between their teeth, and then they shake their head side to side. And Stephanie did a series of experiments to show that what they were actually doing, the only um, hypothesis we couldn't rule out was that they were actually um, weighing it the way if you picked up two light objects and you wanted to know which one was heavier, you would bob your hands and the, and you would be able to control the acceleration and you would be able to therefore, you know, feel the force on your, on, on your skin and, and deduce the mass. And that's exactly what we think the squirrels are doing. So and not only do they remember where they buried their nuts and you talked about the caches and the thousands of nuts, but they organ they organize them. They're the Marie Kondos uh, of the uh, of the wild world. They they actually organize them hierarchically. Yes, um, we found that if you give them a random series of nuts, they st- um, they will uh, walnuts, pecans. We were just using commercial nuts: walnuts, pecans, almonds, hazelnuts, and peanuts. And they will um, move. They will cash. Even in a random series, they will cache the walnuts near each other, the almonds near each other, and they're not near each other. I mean, we're talking about, you know, yards apart. And so the squirrel is caching, and this is over a period of an hour, they're caching over a very large area, and yet they're remembering the walnuts are northeast, the almonds are southeast. And so when they get a walnut, they carry to the northeast. They also have to remember where the other walnuts are, because... Um, we measure the, you know, the where the uh, the locations and the dis- the actual density of the nuts. So um, the distance from one walnut to the next is much larger than the distance from one peanut to the next, because the more valuable the nut, the more they disperse out because other squirrels are trying to steal them. And if one squirrel finds a walnut, then they immediately start searching in that area for other walnuts. And so if you space, the more you space them out, the lower the risk of um, that nut being stolen. Right. So, and that's something they think about a lot too. They, they think about other squirrels observing them, caching their nuts. They exhibit self-control. We could be here all, all day. We could do a whole show with you. We probably should do an all show with you, a whole show with you. Uh, but yes, they're thinking about all these things. The next time you lose your smartphone, you should realize the squirrel would know where there's where smartphone is. It would be where it puts all that other kind of stuff uh, and it would all be grouped together. I, so I mean, squirrel, squirrels are too smart to need smartphones, I think, actually. <laughs> so um, so th- this looked into the specifics. This particular study looked into the specifics of something we've all seen squirrels do, which is sort of leap from from one surface to another, usually from a branch to a to another branch or a branch to a more stable object. You were trying to figure out what kinds of decisions squirrels make when they do this. And, and it turned out to be kind of a, an elaborate set of findings. There's some things that we could generally say. One of them is that squirrels, they're much more concerned with leaping from a stable surface if they possibly can. That's, that's what more more interest to them than how far they have to leap, correct? 
Yes. I mean, we were not asking them. I mean, what we were challenging them with is it wasn't that large a, a gap we were asking them. But what they didn't know is what how bendy or how compliant the, the takeoff was going to be. And so that's what um, and, and what they've got. They've got so many mechanics to um, once they once they leap, they change their body, they change their tail. They've got these incredible um pads on their in their paws they've got long claws and they're extremely agile so once they take off they do things like you know bounce off another surface the parkour move we showed and but also when they hit the the, the next branch they can they would swing under they can hold on they can bring bring themselves up it's it very it's very much like gymnastics and um and in fact the squirrels no matter what we did, they they were always able to get across and not fall. So, uh, yeah, actually, since you're bringing this up, I have to ask you, and I'm not saying that I watched that 21-minute Squirrel Ninja obstacle course video multiple times, but let's say I did. Yes, uh, yes. So I think at one point, if I recall, one thing that he says there is that he thinks the squirrels are also kind of using their vision in an interesting way, like if, as they're sort of tumbling through space. I don't know. They keep their eye focused on a certain point or there's some way they have of kind of orienting themselves. That was this guy's non-scientific observation. I yeah. Mean, do, do, um, squirrels, do squirrels get the twisties, I guess, is what I'm really asking you. I mean, that's a great – that's exactly um, what I think our study is, is talking about is what is the interaction between you know cognition and uh, physical um, physical ability. I mean, some people would say they're, it's all cognition, but um, but planning, executive planning, and and um, and motor um, skills, basically. What's and that that's absolutely what the twisties is all about. Um, Mark Rober, who did those videos, he's he's fantastic and careful, and I've had long talks with him, and I love his I love his videos, but. Um, our study is the first study to look at squirrels sleeping. So he, he's speculating yeah. about that. Um, squirrels are actually extremely visual. They're very unusual in that the whole group is diurnal. So they have very good vision. Um, they've got good color vision. They've actually got visual cortex that's more similar to that of a monkey. Um, you know, it's if you put a rat and a monkey on a line, the, the squirrel is close, you know, is is, to, is monkey words mm -hmm. in terms of how big its visual uh, visual cortex is. So clearly they're extremely visual. Um, but um, I mean, those questions are, are going to be great future research questions. Right. So speaking of future research, first of all, I want to back up and just sort of clarify or help people out with one term you use. You use the term parkour. If you don't know that term, if you've seen movies like Casino Royale or The Bourne Ultimatum, you've seen these chase scenes where uh, at least one of the participants seems able to kind of bounce off things in an urban uh, landscape and uh, sort of run almost parallel to the ground along a wall for just a, a brief interval. This is kind of a whole uh, form of kind of martial arts and acrobatics and stunts uh, that was developed and kind of sits under this name parkour. And, and what you discovered with this experiment was squirrels very quickly, uh, if you change the distance that they have to fly through a little bit or the compliance, the springiness of the branch or something like that, they, they'll very quickly add that move, right, where they just let their feet bounce off a wall to get to their ultimate destination. 
And yes, and that's exactly what they would do. And of course, they had, there's no such thing as this problem that these individual squirrels, these are all wild squirrels that are volunteers. They show up, they're, you know, they work for peanuts and um, <laughs> they don't have large climbing walls um, to practice on. So what we saw was, um, you know, at the moment innovation, definitely, of them um, starting to leap the the, um, the perch was more challenging, and so they bounce off, they, they hit the wall to slow their acceleration to make a more controlled landing. So there's a long, long ro- road that would have to be traveled from this kind of pure research to um, actual applications. But the applications are interesting, right? You could have a robot that goes into a situation like the collapsed Florida building that we, we followed a, a few weeks ago, going through tippy, uh, unpredictable areas of rubble where rocks are canted up against one another and might be slipping and sliding to try to find somebody or rescue somebody. You could have a robot that maybe mimics that kind of decision-making and agility to get across a, a, a very problematic land. Landscape. Exactly. And I mean, I think what we're bringing is kind of um, giving a, a further goal to the field of robotics. It's like, this is what your robot, your robot should, should actually have to do. And, um, and we're also, we're part of a big um, seven PI collaborative um, grant right now funded by, um, it's a, it's a multi-university research initiative to do, to build a, a squirrel robot and um, it's very blue sky, but what our group has done by brainstorming, there's been a lot of, um, of, of great information. And in fact, the roboticists are working on things like squirrel spines and squirrel claws, and they're pushing, and our behavior, um, the behavioral observations of real squirrels is actually pushing the roboticists uh, into areas that they never, they never, it never occurred to them before, basically. We're also um, adding, bringing cognition to the field of um, animal locomotion, which a lot of that is studying how animals move, but the way you do it is you poke them in the butt, you know, not gently, but <laughs> you give them a little startle and then they, they take off on a, on a treadmill. And so what um, our study where you're, for one thing, you're using volunteer animals that come to you, they decide they want to participate and then they're make and so they're um th- then they are um and they're also animals that are raised you know they're not they're wild animals so that they've got all the experience the motor experience of the species it's not an animal that has had a, a restricted experience and so i think it's it's i think we're just you know it's just a tip of the iceberg on what squirrels can actually do and what we can actually um study yeah, I mean, I will say, having watched those videos, those squirrels are volunteers, but they know you guys. But they they go, oh, here comes Judy again. I can tell she's in a oh, bad yes. mood today. They 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 know you guys pretty well. We have to stop there. This is just fascinating stuff, though. And you've been a great guest, Lucia Jacobs, uh, principal investigator of the Jacobs Lab of Cognitive Biology at the University of California, Berkeley, co-author of a new study published in Science. Uh, look for the very exciting-looking cover: uh, Acrobatic squirrels learn to leap and land on tree branches without falling. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you. My pleasure. And thanks for listening. We always assume that you folks out there are as curious about things as we are, and we're very curious. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, and, um, you know, if you did, you could recommend it to somebody who likes to listen to podcasts and likes to hear about squirrels and segues and unclassifiable astral bodies uh, and other stuff as well. We'll see you later in the week. 
squirrels in my backyard, squirrels in the public park, squirrels climbing oak trees, squirrels playing after dark, squirrels. That's all I really want is squirrels. Ten at a time, I want squirrels. With fuzzy bellies, I want squirrels. I want to pet all the squirrels, 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 squirrels.